I'm Marty Moscoen. Welcome to The Connection. When I watch reports of the devastation from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria and hear the anguished stories of those who have lost loved ones in the rubble, I wonder what does it take to not just survive this horrifying experience, but to go on and put one's life back together. I have the same question when family members of victims of mass shootings describe their rage and grief as they deal with the shock of their losses. Same with stories from the war in Ukraine where civilians have been targeted, their communities destroyed, and millions displaced by the fighting. Natural disasters, mass shootings, wars, and conflict are sadly all too common these days. Today on The Connection, what does it take to heal from the trauma of these life-changing events? This morning, this could be a difficult conversation for some to hear may not be appropriate if you have experienced trauma or are dealing with a traumatic event. Let me introduce our two guests. April Natural is a trauma stress specialist who directed the New York State response to September 11th, helped launch the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is now the 988 number, and the National Disaster Distress Helpline. April Natural, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks so much for the invitation, Marty. Absolutely. And also joining us, Robin Gerwich. She's a professor of psychology at Duke University School of Medicine and a senior advisor at the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress in the Terrorism and Disaster Program. She is currently in Moldova, where she is working with Ukrainian refugees. Robin Gerwich, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let me begin with you, if I could, April Natural, and even reading the introduction that I wrote, it feels as if we are dealing just with relentless crises, disasters, emergencies, tragedies, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Is there a risk that we could grow numb to all this horror? Oh, it's a good question, and unfortunately, it certainly can happen, Marty. We see all these events almost every day in the news now, but of course, as soon as something affects you directly or even indirectly, um, some of that um, ability to ignore things or get too used to it starts to fade, and as human beings, we, we feel for one another. We feel for one another. I wonder, though, whether if we get numb, do we? if we get numb to these events, do we get sort of numb to the capacity to care for others? Oh, I certainly hope that's not the case, Marty. And actually what we find is that recovery really has to do more with people connecting with each other. And so as many people go through these traumatic events, I think that's one of the lessons that almost everyone takes away is that connecting with each other is one of the most important things we can do in our lives and certainly as a part of recovery. And I do want to get to all of that, and there's a lot to discuss there. To you, Robin Gerwich, a, a variation on the question that I put to April Naturel, what do we owe people who are victims or, or survivors of, of these mass events? What do we owe them, if, even if we don't know them? I think that's an exceptional question, Marty. Um, I think when we're talking about how to be best support them, it is finding ways, I, I know this is going to echo April, but connections are one of the most important ways, the most protective factors that we can have. So if we want to help others, there are ways we can do that. For example, we may choose to make a charitable donation to a reputable relief organization. I would strongly encourage 
that families include their children, that they see what they're doing, they talk to them about why they're doing this, because writing a check or sending Venmo or something, children don't see. So we really need to include our children and teens about what they think. This is a time to teach values about how we feel and take care of each other. Let me go back to you, April, and and raise another question here. In many ways, these are very public events. You've got media, you've got cameras, reporters interviewing people who are going through really difficult times. Does that make Mm -hmm. it harder for people to either grieve or do whatever they have to do, especially immediately after some kind of a, a, a big disaster, April? Um, we see from, we hear from people actually, Marty, that some people feel better talking in public and letting others know and sharing what's happened to them so that they can feel the support. Um, and then there are other folks who say they would rather grieve in private or at least have some time, um, to adjust to what's happened and be able to, you know, be less public until they're ready. I mean, are there certain questions, April, you think that are appropriate and ones that are really just off the mark? Yes, absolutely, Marty, and I'm sure we've been a witness to those and the images as well. We know that media images and discussion can actually disturb some people who've been in the specific trauma as well as in other traumas in their lives. And I'm sure Robin will speak to the issue of making sure that children who can't really developmentalize understand what's happening shouldn't be exposed to too much material either. Well, Robin, you want to pick up on that, and and we do need to focus a lot on children just because these are events that are happening around them that must feel so confusing and and confounding. I think it is uh, a time where adults need to take notice. Um, The rates of child depression, child anxiety, suicidal ideations are on the rise in our young people, and not just older adolescents, but young people, young children, uh, tweens and teens for sure. And so um, as we think about families that are grieving or have experienced loss, it's very hard. Like you said, they're front and center. So the ability to grieve in private is very difficult. Um, sometimes it's difficult to even have the rituals and the, that their culture and their faith would, would dictate because of an event, whether everything from COVID to now the earthquake in um, Turkey and Syria that you can't do the things you would normally do to help healing. I think as we are seeing events unfold, whether it is something like Uvalde or storms in Louisiana, uh, we have to make sure that we talk to our children because to believe they don't know is, mm. <laughs> is unrealistic. And there's some actually a very good study that came out after the Boston Marathon bombing that said that families, as much as they had good intentions, that tried to protect their children from knowing about an event, those children actually did worse than families that took a deep breath and started the conversation and helped them. But I think from a media end, it's important very young children, they should not be watching this at all. Just because... As children it, get older, 
they can't understand. Like uh, during 9-11, the instant replays, very young children don't understand instant replays. So as far as they were concerned, how scary it was, there probably wasn't a building left in New York if you thought every time you saw a building fall, that was a new building. Sure, right? sure. Um, and the words don't, don't the adult language, it makes it very difficult. With, as children get older, it should be limited and definitely talk to children about what they see and what they understand about what's being said. But parents need to take a break from watching it, whether it's or reading about it, and all forms, radio, TV, social media, take a break because it can overwhelm and swamp us emotionally. Yeah, those images are, are just so powerful. April, let me go back to you. And, you know, we're talking about these, these, these mass events or mass disasters. Do people respond differently if it's, let's say, an earthquake or a flood versus a, a mass shooting? Well, there are definitely differences, at least initially, Marty, because we can understand almost that there are weather events that happen in the globe, right? A flood or a hurricane or tornado, it's it's part of the natural events that we see, although the the idea of um, climate change is is making more of them happen is is a whole nother shift in our thinking. Sure. But we do, we do know that one of the major differences is when somebody and one human being purposefully tries to hurt others and a large number of others and with such horrible ways of of just being completely you know unawares of the fact that they're they're killing children or that that they're murdering a number of people we see that the recovery takes much longer that we we try to see the good in each other and it's very hard for us to make meaning when one human being purposefully tries to hurt another and so the recovery actually usually takes a longer period of time and that's really one of the biggest differences that we see because it feels personal feels and, personal and, and impersonal at the same time <laughs> right exactly that's a good description it's like why me it's the idea that Somebody would kill someone they don't even know. We can't really comprehend that, at least those of us who have empathy and caring for others or or aren't in a rage. So, yes, it's personal and impersonal at the same time. It's a good description. Robin, you're in uh, Moldova. You're dealing with uh, refugees from Ukraine, and we're talking, obviously, about a, we're coming up on the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Um how does that sort of fit between these 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 poles, I guess, of, of mass murders and also natural disasters? It is an interesting thing. So I am in Moldova working with uh, mental health uh, clinicians so they can sit, because I don't speak Romanian, training them on how to best support the 100,000 refugees that are currently residing in Moldova. They've had another close to 5,000 pass through their country. And so they have never experienced this kind of event before. And so we are working with them so they can best serve the children and the families that are coming through. It is, war is one of those things that, um, again, it is different than a hurricane or an earthquake um, because it is a man-made event. And when you talk about these kinds of events, I would agree 
it's similar for adults and children that the the healing and recovery time is harder, the meaning making is more difficult, and the risk for mental health problems is slightly higher. We know what can help, and we have to do that as quickly as possible. And I think that is critical. After these events, do we have the right resources in place so that communities can support each other and heal and recover um, as best they can. Well, I'll tell you they what. Will if, always change. Yeah, we're uh, just hold on to that thought only because we're we're coming up on a break here, and I want to I want to spend some time talking about what can help. And again, talking with uh, Robin Gerwitz, who's a Duke University psychologist, specializes in traumatic stress in children, joining us from Moldova, which is right next to Ukraine, uh, where she is helping uh, local people there deal with the refugee crisis. April Natural with us as well, traumatic stress and disaster specialist. And we're talking today on The Connection about how to heal from some of these traumatic events. Do stay with us. We will be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne talking with April Naturell, Robin Gerwich about natural disasters and mass shootings, wars and conflicts. They are all too common these days. We're talking about what it takes to heal from the trauma of these life-changing events. Talking with uh, Robin Gerwich right before the break, and she is joining us from Moldova, which is right next to Ukraine. Let me uh, play a voicemail from one of our listeners, Paul, who brings up Russia's war against Ukraine. I'm just struck by the similarity between the indiscriminate destruction and the horrible loss of life and pain and suffering that has happened in Turkey and Syria for natural causes. The very same day that that happened, just about, the Russians began bombing Ukraine again, doing exactly the same thing, wanton destruction, inflicting enormous pain and suffering on purpose. There's no conclusion that I can come to other than the fact that human beings are capable of just the most enormous evil. He talks about human beings capable of the most enormous evil. If I can put that to you, April, do you sometimes feel that way? Oh, we've certainly seen it in these incidents, Marty. Um, But in my experience, I get to see when we're working in these responses, how people are able to come together after events, whether they are human-caused or natural disasters. And to me, it feels very much like a sacred space because people's defenses are down, they're at their most vulnerable, but they'll do anything for each other and for their community to come together. So I see that more often than the event itself uh, by human-caused, and we're seeing them on the news, obviously, all the time, but there's still a smaller percentage than all the good things that we do in communities to care for each other. Robin, let me go back to you when you were 
we're talking about what people need, and we're talking about refugees now in Moldova, what they need as they, uh, I guess, wait for the war to end. What is some of the advice that, that, that you give to some of these um, helper people, rescuers, people that are, are working directly with, with refugees? Yes, thanks for that question, Molly. I, I think one of the things we talk about is when you're talking to families that have experienced this uncertainty, we don't know when it'll be over. They don't know sometimes the uh, condition of the loved ones they've left behind. Things are very new. Um, we, we look at how do we help parents, for example, strengthen their connections with their children by maintaining their routine as much as possible by um, thinking of ways to be a good role model. What do you want your child to see? We know that talking to children and spending time with them can help. The faster they can get them into the routine of school, the better and more secure children feel. Uh, we also talk to them to, to piggyback on April of how do you talk to your children about the goodness in people. The most horrific events, as tragic as they are, should also be considered as windows of opportunity to talk to your children about how we treat each other, what are your values and beliefs, and if there is any way to help a child, even if they're the ones that are hurting, that they feel that they can help in some way, someone else that is also hurting, we do better. So how can we do those kinds of, how do we engage in those kinds of activities with families, no matter whether they're the, the refugees or not? Um, all of those types of things are critical uh, to healing and recovery. That is so important, and I'm thinking of, of students and, and families from some of the school shootings, April, who have, you know, turned their, their grief, their rage, whatever they're feeling, into activism and doing really important work. Oh, they're incredible. I see the strength that comes out when they want to not only help themselves to feel better and to heal and to feel like there is some purpose and meaning and, and to take the lessons, but the fact that they always talk about wanting to pay it forward in a sense. They want others in other communities know what's been helpful to them and also to try and advocate for changes so that other people don't have to suffer. It's actually one of the primary things that we hear from people, especially in the school shooting events. Well, you have talked to a lot of, of I guess, families and um I guess, let me ask you something, because I, I was struggling with language for the show, uh, whether to say, you know, the victim of something, the survivor of something. What what uh, words do we need to use during this hour? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of people really do prefer refer to survivor. And we know from the research that when one thinks of oneself that way, one does better, right? right. So, so thinking themselves as survivors, although you'll get some people who want to be acknowledged as someone who's been a victim and that they've overcome that. But we, we tend to use the term survivor. Um, and it's important because language, as you said before, mm. is very important. I think we, we have to bring into the conversation here that we talk a lot about mental illness and trauma and PTSD gets thrown around post-traumatic 
post-traumatic stress disorder, when in fact most people don't develop a major mental illness or post-traumatic right. stress disorder. It's the it's the least occurring incident uh, that mm-hmm. can happen. Rather, we want people to understand that there is resilience, that we have natural resilience, that we can learn some resilience characteristics. And again, coming together as community is the most effective way for people to heal. And so we try to put those messages forward. Well, let me pick up and let me go back to you, April, then Robin, we'll get you back in on the conversation. If you're talking about then building resilience. Um, and mm-hmm. this is you, April. Um, what do people need? What helps to build resilience? Well, many of us have uh, characteristics like optimism and the ability to see the good in others and s- strength and, and a good attitude. Um, it's always hard to have that after you've had a loss. So as Robin started to say before, to acknowledge the losses, to have ceremony, ritual, memorials that help us to acknowledge those things, but then also understand that as human beings, we have the capacity to adapt, to learn, to create lessons, um, and to help others going forward. Um, and so these are the types of uh, conversations we like to have so that people understand they're not automatically going to be somebody who is having a mental distress because they've been through a trauma. Truthfully, if that were the case, we wouldn't survive as a species. There are so many traumas that can happen to people in their lives. Um, So we use these examples. You know, what does help them? Who can they connect with? Who are the people who understand and accept how they feel? People they can talk to uh, and work together with to rebuild community and to rebuild their lives. April, just a quick follow-up question, and then Robin will go back to you. But do we over, do we not understand PTSD, or do we use it wrongly? Do we overemphasize it when dealing with or talking about some of these, these big events? I think so, Marty, yes. And it is uh, really important that people understand that they probably will not get PTSD after a traumatic event. Now, if they've had multiple events or severe events, like like soldiers who are daily exposed to life-threatening situations or watching their colleagues die um, in these horrific situations, Mm -hmm. they have a higher risk. But most people don't unless they've had some very severe continuous traumatic events in their lives that that we are actually pretty resilient, especially when we help each other. So we do we do overuse PTSD and, and if people think they have PTSD, the research tells us that they, they won't do as well as people who think uh-huh. I, I'm not going to get PTSD. I know how to get through this. I know what I need to do. Well, Robin, I would assume that that it's a net, you know, the, the response to any kind of violent, let's say violent incident is rage or fear or all the sort of natural emotions that one would have when when dealing with a threat. I think you're right, Marty. We all have those reactions and emotions. And I think, as she pointed out, as April talked about, most individuals, including children, are resilient. But the caveat there is just because most of us are resilient doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. Right? We are resilient because of what we do. So when we are able to talk to them with the the ideas that April has outlined, but I think it's also important to let individuals know, teach them, these are the kinds of things that you may experience, so they don't worry that there's something wrong. 
that you may have a hard time. For example, for children, they may have a hard time with concentration and attention and learning new materials. They may be more irritable. They may have more temper tantrums if they're young. They may um, have more ups and downs in their mood swings above and beyond just being a teenager. If I know that these are the kinds of things that may happen, then maybe parents and teachers will be a little bit more understanding about the kinds of homework and tests they give in the immediate aftermath of an event because they know that there might be a little bit of a drop in grades right away. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, so helping them understand that some of those emotions, that whole range of anger and sadness, are there, um, but to also look at what positive things. I'm always reminded about Mr. Rogers. Anytime something happens, look to the helpers because there are first responders and there are everyday people that are working to help communities after these disasters. And Mr. Rogers was so good at naming things for children, you know, explaining the world to them. There were some incredible episodes that he did. That's uh, Robin Gerwitz. She's a professor of psychology at Duke University School of Medicine, senior advisor at the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress, and she joins us from Moldova, where she is helping um, first responders and and supporters of Ukrainian refugees. April Natural, a traumatic stress specialist who directed the New York State response to September 11th, in fact, helped launch the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is now the 988 number, and the National Disaster Distress Helpline. I mentioned in my introduction that there was this, you know, horrific shooting at Michigan State University. Let me play a clip from uh, the uh, basketball coach, Tom Izzo, at the university, speaking at a vigil this week after the mass shooting that claimed the lives of three students and critically wounded five others. Let's give it a listen. We've come for many different reasons to heal, to grieve, to honor our victims to stand up to fear, but you're going to have to do a lot in your life. Whatever you're feeling, it's all valid. Emotions are different for each and every person. I cry in front of my team. I cry on national TV. Don't be afraid to show your emotions. We all process trauma in a very different way. I'm just glad we're all here together tonight. And again, uh, Tom Izzo, Michigan State University basketball coach, speaking earlier this week. April, I have to say when he he said, you know, he talked about, especially a man, I think, you know, talked about crying in public, um, really brought me to tears, I have to say. I have to say, too, Marty, that this is such a good example of positive leadership in public messaging, which is a very effective way to help communities recover as well. We look to our leadership. They can give us messages that say it's what what I loved everything that he said. Everybody experiences this differently. You can be expressive, all different types of ways of expressing grief and trauma and fear and rage will be coming out and we have to be accepting of that um, and to allow each other to have those emotions. Um, I I thought it was a a wonderful example of good leadership and the type of public messaging that can help communities recover. Do you agree, Robin? 
Absolutely. And I think the other thing that I took away, I was like you, I got a little bit clamped. I got a little <laughs> teary too, just listening to that. But I think the other thing he said is we need to validate our feelings. That trying to talk mm-hmm. someone out of feeling upset or angry or scared doesn't work. It definitely doesn't work for adults and it doesn't work for children either. We need to validate those, that it is okay to have those emotions. It is okay for parents to show that they are upset by events to their children, but most importantly, they need to be able to show their children that they can pull themselves together, that it doesn't um, swamp them to the point that they can't take care of their daily life events or to take care of their children. Um, So, because children are looking, and that's one of the best predictors of how well children are doing is how well their parents and their caregivers are doing. So how do we how do we lean on each other? How do we support each other? Because everybody will have a different timeline for their healing and recovery, and that's okay. Nature, uh, uh, April, is there any way of predicting? You know, looking at people's either life experience or just their personalities, their style. You know, who will do better dealing with some of these these horrific mass events? For sure, Marty. We know that there are some risk categories from having uh, previous traumatic events that were very difficult for people. Um, we certainly see that those who are in minority populations or disadvantaged populations historically uh, tend to have a, a, a harder time with recovery. We're not sure whether it's because they don't get the type of attention that other communities get or not, um, but we do know that we haven't paid enough attention to the specific needs of different types of populations. We're always concerned about ch- children, which is why Robin and the work that she does is so important because there is a difference uh, between the way adults react and the way that children react. Uh, we see that there are some folks who may have suffered with a previous mental illness before. About 50% of them tend to do better because they've learned to cope with trauma in their lives, hmm. and others may not have, so they may do worse. Um, and we were certainly concerned about people who have issues like functional and access needs. So, for example, if they are trapped somewhere because they need help with transportation or just being mobile, um, they can certainly have a larger fear response, and so they're at higher risk. So we always have to pay attention to different populations and their needs because there are different risk factors. Sure. And, Robin, I was even reading in preparation for today's interview about something called post-traumatic growth, that for some people, you know, as, as hard as it is to imagine this, can, can, can grow as a result of some of these horrifying incidents. Yes, I think, I think if we look at some of those protective fa- factors and nurture those, that individuals begin to make meaning about what happened. They look at how do I, I want to move forward. And they actually can show some, some growth. Um, and they look back and say, wow, I've made this, this advance. I think all of us during COVID, that, that, that was a, you know, that was a, an event that affected all of us. Many people, um, experienced some pretty significant 
uh, distress and trauma from that, but we're able to figure out new ways to cope and problem solve and move forward and be able to recover from that and heal from that. Um, so I, I, I do believe that we can see post-traumatic growth. I, you know, you were asking about risk factors as much as I love Kelly Clarkson, she got it wrong. Oh. What doesn't kill us doesn't make us stronger. It actually, the more traumatic events we pile on ourselves, the harder and the more at risk sure. we are, the more critical it is to have those supports available, the more important it is to have um, services available because those those individuals are at higher risk for not only mental health, but physical health problems. But we definitely know that there's incredibly effective help out there at all stages after an event. Well, let's take another short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. That's uh, Robin Gerwich, who's in Moldova, um, April Natural, here in the States, along with us here at The Connection on WHYY. We are talking about some tough stuff. Natural disasters, mass shootings, wars, and conflict, they are all too common, but uh, it is possible to heal from the trauma of some of these life-changing events. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. On WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Robin Gerwitz. She's a professor of psychology at Duke University School of Medicine and a senior advisor at the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress and the Terrorism and Disaster Program. As I mentioned earlier, currently in Moldova, working with Ukrainian refugees. April Natural is a uh, traumatic stress specialist who directed the New York State response to September 11th. She helped to launch the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is now the 988 number, also the National Disaster Distress Helpline. Let me play another clip, and this is from earlier this week. Families of the victims of a mass shooting in Buffalo, uh, New York, at a grocery store in in May gave impact statements in court this week addressing the, the perpetrator, the killer, who was then sentenced to life in prison. Let's hear what they had to say. Even with all of the heartache that you have caused, You still have failed to break our family spirit. You thought you broke us, but you awoke us. We all know the pure hatred and motivations behind your heinous crime, and we are here to tell you that you failed. I watched you kill my mom. I watched you on the internet. I watched you shoot her once, reload, and shoot her again. To me, killing you is the easy way out. One day, I hope you find it in your heart to apologize to those 10 families who you've shattered their lives. At 19 years old, I had to bury my first son. But the pain I feel from you taking my eye from our family will never even compare to burying my own child. So do I hate you? No. Do I want you to die? No. I want you to stay alive. I want you to think about this every day of your life. Think about my family and the other nine families that you've destroyed forever. 
I mean, I just I've listened to that several times, and it's just the eloquence, but also the heartbreak. And and April, I I, mm-hmm. I wanted to play that because those powerful impact statements. But the importance, I guess, in this process, this grief process of of traumatic events, the importance of speaking one's truth. Can you speak to that? Absolutely, Marty. We need to give voice. And thank you for doing that, because it really is the most important message, is that we have got to allow those who have suffered with these events to have their voice, to share with others, um, wh- whatever it is, uh, as we heard the, uh, from Michigan State, wh- whatever their emotions are. Um, but these these were just Ooh. phenomenal, phenomenal people with incredible human spirit. And and it says to me that as much as they're suffering, and they will the rest of their lives, right, they'll carry this memory um, of their loved ones for their whole lives. Um, But they will continue to, to function and have joy in their lives again at some point, because they didn't allow it to overtake them. They were really incredible to hear. But um, what we hear too from survivors is that they want to hear the voices of other survivors. What helped most? You know, what what did they think worked or what didn't work? Or just being together and knowing that there's somebody else out there who understands the myriad of feelings that they have. This is one of the primary messages we hear from victims who've suffered before and recently um, and those who are trying to prepare and make sure that they, you know, can handle some of these events that some of them are now expecting to happen at some point in their sure. communities. I mean, you're saying give, give them a voice, let us hear them, give them a microphone so that their words can be heard by, by other survivors, but also the rest of us? Uh, absolutely. I think we need to have these examples of people who don't fall back into the rage or the anger or, you know, the the events that these perpetrators have have carried out um, and not go down that road, but instead to say, you didn't really accomplish what you wanted to. It was a useless thing to do. Yes, it's a horrific loss for us, but you didn't break our spirit. And we are going to continue to love and care for each other. I think those are extraordinary messages. Whenever the survivors are ready to speak, we should be ready to hear them. No question. Robin, I'd be curious about your your response, um, what you heard from from those families. Absolutely raw emotion, Um, but really speaking from the heart of what they wanted to communicate, to say, you did not destroy us. You shattered our families. You hurt our community, but you did not destroy us. We are here, and and we will survive, was what I heard, the strength in the midst of the absolute raw pain was there. And I think as we talk about all these events unfolding, we are seeing a rise in, in, in racism and hate crimes and anti-Semitism. How do we want our children to stand up? What do we want them to know to be an ally to those that may be um, the, the uh, targets? How do we want them to behave? Are we being the, the role models for that? Because these events will continue to unfold if we don't have some way of saying we have to come up with a new way of helping our children 
say, no, if I see someone being bullied, I will say something. If I know something is being said, I will say something. And that comes from helping children feel like there are trusted adults in their world. And that is actually a little harder Hmm. than it sounds. But how do we help children know you can talk to me about anything? So we have to have these difficult conversations with our children because if we can't have the difficult conversations, they're not going to talk to us about how they're feeling and what they're thinking and get our thoughts on what they should do. And that helps to build resilience if we can do that. I hear you. Uh, April, how do you become a trusted adult? How do you be a a trusted Uh, adult? Uh, Yes, listening as best you can, Marty, and hearing exactly and responding to what they say rather than what you think that they should be doing. Adults, tweens, teens, children, um, it it brought back the memories to me of many of the children that we met after 9-11 in different communities throughout the city, and they said things like, well, we don't really want counseling. What we really need to do is to learn how to problem solve. We need to know how to talk to each other and figure out how to work out our differences or live with our differences. Um, right, right now we have no idea how to do that. It was one of the most astounding conversations I had ever witnessed. And so the listening is really, really important because, you know, we come with our own ideas of what should be done, but clearly we're, we're not solving all the problems that we see um, going on in the country between the mass violence incidents, uh, the suicide rate in in our country. We've got a lot of work to do, so I think we need to better learn to listen well and respond to exactly what we're hearing rather than what we're assuming we think we need to do. Yeah. And, and Robin, I'm thinking, especially with children, the idea is, we, you know, we want to take away their pain, their hurt, their fear, rather than listening to them express how it is that they feel at that moment. Exactly. And it's very hard for a parent to hear their child say, I'm scared or I'm worried or I'm angry. Those big emotions can be very hard to hear. And sometimes our first response is, it's okay. You don't have to feel that way. Again, we need to validate that they're feeling that way and then talk to them about what we can do to manage those emotions. Talk to them about the fact that they can come to you about anything. If you can talk to them about this, it will pay dividends down the road. I can talk to you about horrible events means I can talk to you about peer pressure and disappointments. I can talk to you about drug use. I can talk to you about suicidal ideation because there's somebody that's listening and not trying to talk me out of it or tell me that I'm wrong. So what we do after these big events also sets the stage for all of the uh, life events that that come next. I wonder t- resources. Yes, absolutely. If, if you're ever not sure, ask for help. Sometimes that's really hard to do. It is. It is. And there's some out there that are free. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network, for example, has many, many free resources for parents on how do you talk to your children? How do you support them? How do you help with traumatic grief? So there are things that are available. I wish children came with manuals. They don't. So we have to figure out how do we, how do we get the information we need so we can be the best supports to our children and teens that we can and to each other, sure. and to each other. 
April, I'm, I'm also thinking about anniversaries. You know, we, we September 11th, you know, not a couple of years ago, you know, we marked the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Um, the, the Parkland shooting had its anniversary this week. How important yes. is it to do that, um, to, to mark these anniversaries? Well, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit and ritual, Marty. So what we've learned is that we need to do these things. We need to recognize the events, to never forget, right? So the, that's one of the messages we heard from 9-11. We also continue to hear that from Holocaust survivors, to never forget, because we do always have lessons to learn, and we're not very good at that, so we do need to revisit them. But we find that ritual and remembering memorials actually do help people heal. We come together, we remember the good times that we had, that we know that we have the capacity for joy and for caring for each other, um, and never forgetting people that made an impact in our lives. Um, and so I, I know many of these events become media events, um, and we recommend to survivors to do what works for them. Right. Is it going out to dinner with your closest family? Um, is it going to a public memorial? You know, we did a, a study at the uh, 10th anniversary of 9-11 and asked the communities what they wanted. Um, did they want to continue with this uh you know, large event that we have in, in the city down by the site every year, or did they want to have smaller community commemorations? And overwhelmingly, people said that they want to continue the annual event with throughout the whole city together because they were really afraid that people would forget that this happened and, and what the implications were of that, and that they would forget that people actually really did come together. The whole globe came together. My office received 4,000 500 different calls from people all over the city, the nation, and the world wow. supporting those in New York who suffered. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, so, yes, r ritual and memorial are, we need to do this. You know, we, we celebrate birthdays and holidays, and goodness, we make a big deal out of Groundhog Day. So <laughs> well, we know that we, we are creatures of <laughs> ritual. <certainly> yeah. <laughs> but uh, let me just pick up on something you said earlier, and, and I mentioned this in my introduction, so I'm trying, you know, I, I have never lived through any of these things that we've been talking about. And, and so until you're tested in a way, you do not know how you're going to respond. Um, and this sort of idea of, of how would I respond? And, and can you feel joy again after such a tragic loss? And I hear April, you saying, yes, you can. Oh, absolutely. And it's one of the messages that we like to say to people, you don't feel like it now. Um, but recovery is about allowing yourself that again, you don't want to lose out on the connections that you have with the people who are here in your life and what, what you can offer them as well as what they can offer you. So this kind of slow messaging and, and to what Robin said before, what we actually do find is that but more information helps to decrease people's anxiety so that if they know they're going to have symptoms, especially around an anniversary, we know that symptoms can start to go up again, this feeling of anxiety or fear or like something bad is going to happen again, or maybe sadness, you know, crying and remembering. Um, but that after the anniversary, those symptoms drop pretty significantly again. So we know there's a lot of emotion attached around them. And we want to help prepare people so that they know this might happen. You want to be with others, you don't want to isolate, and you want to do something that makes you feel more comfortable and not uncomfortable. So if you don't want to go to the big event, you know, that the community is having, but maybe want to have a small, intimate, uh, you know, party, 
uh, or dinner or celebration of life uh, with people that are most important to you. Do what makes you feel most comfortable, but certainly to not be alone and, and recognize you're going to have responses. Sure. We don't forget these things. This idea of closure to me is a myth. Uh, I, we don't forget yeah. the people who've died. We don't forget these traumatic events. We, we remember them till the day we die. And so it's really a matter of acknowledging that and recognizing that it's okay. Um, and how do we cope with it? What makes us, what gets us through those days um, in the best way possible? You know, as, as April's talking, I, Robin, I'm, I, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, to that point, when there's grief and loss, we don't get over it. We figure ways to get through it. And the more we can contribute our voices to that, so if there's been a school shooting like Parkland and you're thinking about memorials, include the children, include the students in helping decide what would be the best thing that they would like to do for a memorial for the for the friends that they and the and the staff that were were killed at that um, at that tragedy. Mm. So um, these are really significant to help the healing process. So I, I agree um, that we do it, and it's amazing to me. I started this work when I was a psychologist in Oklahoma City, not knowing anything about this work at the time, and the. The, the people from Oklahoma City that went up to 9-11, the people from 9-11 that reached out to the next group. So um, communities continue to support each other, too, because they are bound together by a life-changing event. So there's a kind of a connection, if I can use that word, Robin, between people who have survived these horrific events. Absolutely. Connections are, to bring us back full circle, Connections are probably the most important element in our healing and recovery. Well, I want to thank you both for the work that you do, and thanks for joining us on The Connection here in Philadelphia on WHYY. Robin Gerwich, thank you very much for, for joining us on the show. Appreciate what you, what you told us and, and the work that you're doing. Thank you, Marty, for having me. A- absolutely. And April Natural, thank you for joining us as well. We appreciate you putting the spotlight on these events, Marty. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. That's April Naturell. She's a traumatic stress specialist who directed the New York State response to September 11th, helped launch the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is now 988. That's a number to call. Also with us, uh, Robin Gerwitz, professor of psychology at Duke University School of Medicine, a senior advisor at the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress, and again joined us from Moldova where she's working with refugees. Well, that's it for today's Connection. Al Banks, the engineer for today's uh, edition of the program. Debbie Builder is senior producer. Paige Murray Bessler, the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscowain, executive producer and host. Have a great weekend. Join us next week for another edition of The Connection right here on WHYY in Philadelphia. <laughs>